Hello, and welcome to Dodecahedron, a podcast by, for, and about role players. I'm Jess Vetters. And I'm Colin Lebeau. Every week we get together to talk about a range of gaming-related topics, from creating a character to running a game, and what it all means for people who share a favorite hobby. We may not be experts, but we do have pleasant voices and a wealth of gaming <laughs> experience that we are eager to share with you. Our topic today is character creation. But before we get into it, Colin, I am depressed. Oh no, what's going on, buddy? Because of all of this work that I've been doing over the last couple of weeks, I haven't had a chance to play in my weekly role-playing game. Oh, geez. I know exactly how that uh, how that feels. There was a whole stretch of about a month where my usual Wednesday game got uh, canceled uh, just a couple of hours before again and again and again. It's rough times. I don't understand how normal people go through life without having something like a regular role-playing session to just take some of the stress off of life. Video games, I'd imagine, comic books, uh, worse forms of entertainment. Yeah, see, I was going to say, by normal people, I mean non-geeks who don't enjoy <laughs> the same things we do. The geeks are becoming normal now. It's true. We've definitely faced a resurgence of popularity and sort of uh, an acceptance of a wide range of geek-related, uh, you know, fandoms and things like that. I mean, back in the early 90s, back in like the 80s, really, like Dungeons & Dragons, it faced like a, a pretty stiff witch hunt from some people. Oh, definitely. There have always been the contingency <laughs> that said like, Ah, oh, Dungeons & Dragons is teaching children how to summon demons. <laughs> to be fair, I we does deal with a lot of demons, not uh, necessarily Judeo-Christian demons, but you know the difference between what are devils and what are uh, demons. You do raise a good point with that. I think I I've tried more to summon demons after starting role playing than I definitely did before. So, granted, that was only one time when I was in high school. And I was a weirdo anyway. Have you ever heard of uh, Mazes and Monsters? I feel like I've vaguely heard of it, but I don't know what it is off the top of my head. It's a Tom Hanks movie uh, when he was way younger. It was a 1982 movie. Uh, Mazes and Monsters is a cautionary tale about how Dungeons and Dragons can ruin people's lives. <laughs> oh, Tom Hanks, what were you doing? Well, in 1982, I assume he was just getting his feet underneath him. Yeah, he was making that paper. So, yeah. if you haven't seen it, it's really worth uh, it's really worth checking out. Um, IMDb gives it a 4.2 out of 10, but I assure you that for nerds, it's really fun to watch. Um, he, essentially, Tom Hanks starts a role playing game in college with a group of friends, and he starts to uh, psychotically hallucinate living in that in that that world communicating with his character's god oh uh and his life spirals oh. out of control irrevocably inexplicably that sounds exactly like what i would expect a dungeons and dragons movie from the 80s to be yes so now, cautionary tale mazes and monsters now Tom do you Hanks, remember anything about his character in that movie the character he played not the character that he played. Um, that 
Yes, I do. I do remember a bit about the character he played and the character he played. Um, I remember that he was a cleric, and I remember that they did a little bit of role-playing in caves. Uh, for some reason, the DM would sequester themselves into a cave and, like, yell the story echoingly through the caverns, and they would sort of LARP it out for some reason, uh, and that apparently worked. That uh, Tom Hanks like... had some sort of a vague, ex vague horror existential experience there where someone yelled about a monster and then he hallucinated a monster and then his life went downhill. Yeah, see, this sounds more like a movie about crippling mental illness than it does about role-playing. You'd think that, but it's definitely more about role-playing. It's about the crippling mental problems that role-playing can cause. Uh-huh. But it does not affect everybody else, just Tom Hanks. So Tom Hanks should never play Dungeons & Dragons, but everybody else is fine. Tom Hanks should never play Dungeons & Dragons. Clearly, that is the lesson. See, that's just such a shame, because I would totally run a game for Tom Hanks. You know, I would too. You know, I, I, you know, I wouldn't even care if he was that bad of a player. It's for the experience, you know? Now, here's a question. Okay. What sort of character do you think Tom Hanks would roll? That is a very good question. I know that he rolled a cleric in the movie, but you'd think he'd actually want to stay away from that. Yeah, I feel like that's a negative uh, experience that would probably mm. paint his view of clerics in general. You know, I'd, I'd probably say uh, I'd probably say an arcane class, but I, I don't think he would play um, a wizard. I, I think a wizard would be too much preparation for Tom Hanks. I think Tom Hanks would go sorcerer, you know, roll off the cusp. Hmm, I could see that. I was thinking Barbarian. Really? Sell me a Tom Hanks barbar Barbarian. So here's my thought with this. Tom Hanks is normally kind of a buttoned down, like put together every man sort of guy. So I feel mm -hmm. like the escapist element of role playing would lead him to go for something a little more wild, a little more improvisational. And what is more wild and improvisational than a Barbarian? Uh, a gnome illusionist. You know, I think you're right. A gnome illusionist is probably the best improvisational class because, goodness gracious, what are you doing from any given moment to the next? Uh, winging it, I would say. <laughs> are you sure that's not better for, like, an avian species? I don't, I, you're banished for that one. You're oh, banished. you didn't like the pun? No, no, I did not. I've never liked the puns. Well... You're in for a treat. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Speaking of treats, let's circle around on that gnome illusionist and actually work into our main topic, character creation. Yes. So. so no, you go ahead. You start it. <laughs> you got to redeem yourself for that pun. Oh, no. That's going to be hard to do because I know I'm just going to drop another one later on. So <laughs> this we is wanted... the last episode. <laughs> First, technically, well, second, kind of. If you've heard the first, congratulations on being a personal friend of ours. Yep, yep, that's true. So we wanted to start off talking about the player perspective in character creation. By that we mean, when you are playing the game, how do you go about creating a character? Mm, it's been a long time since I made a character in another game. I'll see, that's a I shame. Yeah, I mean, even back in even back in college, I mean, I was running 
so many of pretty much all the games that I never really got much of a chance to actually role play a character in the game. That is true. You ran about 95% of them. That's it's pretty much exactly correct. I did make a character recently, a Delta Green character, um, for a game that uh, my friend Ryan, uh, SideQuest Ryan, is running. Um, now, when you and, say Delta Green, is that like a Special Forces military sort of thing? Like a Call of Cthulhu Special Forces military kind of thing. I don't know a whole oh. bunch about it. I just know that Ryan and the group that he gathered are real excited over it. And um, I was like, well, I, I could probably do an every other Saturday sort of thing. Let's let's see how it goes. I'm playing an FBI agent and my partner, the guy, wanted to make his character based off of Fox Mulder and named his character Agent Smolder. I'm going to have to figure out any possible way not to say his name. Yeah, I can understand that. Uh, here is an alternative suggestion, though. Do, does your character already have a name? He does. Darn. Uh, is it possibly Skullsy? No, God, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna meet him on this. It's not like I'm gonna fire back with equal equivalent force. Okay. I I get what you're saying. What if you go with a different FBI story and uh, you call your character Booth? After the guy from Bones. Why does it always have to be a parody deathmatch with you? It's not parody deathmatch. It's playing into and or against this uh, this Fox Mulder wannabe. <laughs> All I'm saying is there is a comedy potential that you might be ignoring in favor of actual role-playing. I am almost certainly ignoring the comedy potential over role-playing. So when you were making this guy, guy, yes. I assume? Yes, that's what, correct. What was the first step into your character creation? Well, the first step, um, as is the step I think with a lot of games, is to know what the game is about. I asked Ryan for a synopsis of what the story was going to be, essentially about the, the back cover variant, so to say. Mm-hmm. I think and, that's very uh, important. Once, yeah, exactly. I mean, you got a, you know, a character for every season, right? If you have a like an excavation in the middle of the desert, you don't want to bring in like a, a deep seas a deep sea oceanographer expert. It's most of their skills won't be of any use to anybody out here in the desert. And why on earth would they be in that situation in the first place? Exactly. So it's important to have some background on the game that's about to be run. After that, uh, I asked whether anybody else had thought up um, their ideas on character because I didn't want to make anything that was too similar to anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, variation is important. Variation is what drives character motivations and the game to be different than one note. Uh, nobody had, so I had a blank check to write. You got to go first. Essentially, yes. So the step after that is I thought, well, what do I want to play? I know that Delta Green, the Call of Cthulhu system, is basically about people grappling with the unknowable horrors of the Lovecraftian-based kind of universe. The, the horrible things that go bump in the night as you irrevocably go insane and fall apart at the seams. So, 
my option was to come in completely green, no supernatural, anything in your life, or to come in with a little bit of experience, you know, sort of a savvy person. I chose the middle ground. A little combination of both. Okay. Uh, my character's backstory was that um, a long time ago, uh, when he was about five years old, or uh, five or six years old, uh, his father took him into the forest with him uh, hunting, like he did, you know, when he became of age enough to keep up with his father. They went out for like a day of of hunting. Well, his dad showed him how to shoot, and while he was in the forest, he disappeared. And uh, his dad searched everywhere for him. There was this huge uh, uproar about it. There was a manhunt nationally looking around, couldn't find him. He was gone for over a year, just completely disappeared. His father was, of course, suspected uh, as, you know, killing his own child, uh, but there was no evidence that was found about it. It was a whole thing. And then a state over in a national forest, uh, some hikers came upon my character uh, you know, uh, like almost a year and a half later, like naked and foraging for berries in the forest and like almost completely feral, caught him and he got reacclimatized uh, re- to everything else, put through, put through the ringer of like social work. So he couldn't tell anybody where he'd been or what had happened. He had no idea. He just had no memory of the situation. Uh, had a lot of negative or had a lot of publicity around it, it was called the lost boy of Tennessee. Um, and uh, then spent the rest of his life desperately avoiding his reputation. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Uh, there was one break that he had in college when he got extremely stressed and um, disappeared from his dorm room, uh, took his car and just drove off. And they found him in the same forest that he disappeared after having suffered a mental break. But that's the only other time he's been back to that forest. And he tries to keep everything under wraps. And he joined the FBI and he desperately tries to stay away from anything weird or supernatural because he just doesn't want any part of it in his life at all. So if Fox Mulder is in the X-Files, this dude's in the A-Files. Yeah, you see where I was going with that? Unfortunately, I see where you're where you're going with that. Are you mad at me again? <laughs> Yeah, so, um, whereas my partner, Smolder, uh, is somebody who does good work but has sort of fringe beliefs, like writes how aliens could have possibly been involved in this, my character keeps to the books entirely and does not hold supernatural possibilities as any remotely clarifiable evidence. So it'll be an interesting interplay between the two, I'm thinking. You, at the very least. You, you uh, realize that basically is Mulder and Scully. I do now, yes. I do realize that that is exactly... Which is not a bad thing. Those two characters <laughs> play really well together. To be fair, we we developed both of our concepts completely independent of each other. See, I love that. That is perfect serendipity. Mm, yeah. it <laughs> It ended up working out extremely well in our favor. Now, after the concept that I came up with, after the backstory that I wrote. Now, Mm -hmm. some people start with figuring out their character sheet before they build their backstory. There is a certain method to that sort. There is a certain method to that madness. Like, for instance, in D&D. Yeah, I've done both. In D&D, I would imagine coming up with your character sheet before you came up with your backstory because the character sheet sort of necessitates what your skills are in a more clarifiable sense and it also kind of tells you, you know, your vocation so to say and kind of what you're good at and then you 
come up with the reasons why you're good at that. I came up with the story first, confident that the kind of freewheeling way that uh, Delta Green and like percentages, Call of Cthulhu stuff handles things that I could shape my character in any direction that I needed to to fall in line with this story. It's good. I like a system that lets you essentially build your character around a story rather than forcing the story to fit whatever it gets built. Absolutely. Talked about this in the first episode a little bit, but there is a system that I've heard of where it's all based on roles and you have a table and whatever you land on with the dice is truth for your character. And because of that, they can actually die during character creation. (laughs) There are some systems like um, Apocalypse World and the variant that I played, uh, Urban Shadows, which is sort of like a urban supernatural version that's used the um, apocalypse world system where you are given these pamphlets that identify uh, what am I what am I archetypes the vampire the mage the demon deal the changeling if you will the ghost Um, they have some other names for them but it gives you a sense of their powers and a couple of other like um, guidelines for building NPCs and things that are important to them. But what's most important on the sheet is how you interact with other players. Character creation is meant to be done at the table with everybody else. Because, uh, for instance, on like uh, – so, so the way that Urban Shadows works or a pivotal part of the game are these debts, these debts that are – basically used like currency between NPCs and PCs. A lot of things are done through debts. People can call them in and you can essentially owe people things. They can owe you stuff for getting things done. And um, when you begin the game, you have these debts that you have to either take or hand out to other player characters and you have to decide why they owe you these debts. So the game essentially forces you to be connected to all the player characters from the very get-go by its construct. Yeah, Apocalypse World and um, pretty much every variant has a method of doing that. I know with Dungeon World, there are bonds and things like that, uh, which are essentially each question or each character sheet has a set of questions on it. Like so and so saved or fill in the blank, really saved you from death. And then you decide who it was and how it happened. Yes, Uh, I know in a... uh... A game that I played once called Amaranthine, uh, which is a game about immortals throughout the ages. They have this really interesting thing that suggests that immortals have all met each other in past lives before. So when you first meet another immortal, uh, what begins is kind of a sub-storytelling game, which is moderated by how much you have in a certain stat. Uh, Around the table, the DM basically starting they set the scene with like the first sentence or so. Then you go around and each person gives another sentence, one or two sentences that continues the scene with that, that includes all of the other characters as, as immortals at different, like in different incarnations. So like, for instance, the one that we were in is there was a, a burning church during the inquisition and we were all a part of it, but we were different people. And around the table, we told the story, and essentially the person with the highest stats gets the most sentences. Interesting. That's a And really, everybody shares that vision. That's an unusual way of setting up a party, 
but it sounds very fascinating. It is very interesting. It requires a lot of uh, a lot of collaborative trust, creativity for building a scene. Definitely, which I like in a game. It's why I'm drawn to things like Dungeon World, and I'm also drawn to a game called Dread, uh, which is essentially play a horror game using a Jenga tower instead of dice. And if the mm. tower falls, you die. <laughs> but you know, just the character of the player who was making the pull, not the whole party. It is very easy to have a total party wipe, though. Uh, but we'll get into a little bit more about different systems in a minute. I want to talk about what makes a good character in a role-playing game. Mm -hmm. Morality sure. aside, because good and evil are, you know, Relative actually... And... Go ahead. Well, it's mechanical in Dungeons & Dragons. That's true. But it's also relative from a moral standpoint. In other games, like the like World of Darkness, there isn't necessarily a good or evil. There's a virtue and a vice and a morality track. Right. Which and I a morality found... track... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I always found that very interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a, a sense of a, a moralistic gray and like the the humanity more or rather for regular mortals of world of darkness, the morality table essentially lets you know what you can do and not be haunted by it. How right. hardened your soul is, which is a downward track until you get to uh, sheer depravity. And, you know, it's on a scale of one to ten and the average person is supposed to be around a seven, which means maybe you could shoplift something small and not feel terrible about it. Or like... Justify you're okay. it to yourself. Exactly. You can dick somebody over for a minor gain, but you're not going to go around like punching people in the face or kicking puppies. Exactly. You're not a monster. Yet. But that aside, what makes a good character? Well, would you like to tackle this first or would you like me to? If you have something to say say it but if not i can get this ball rolling if i didn't have something to say i'd be worried about my ability to continue this podcast <laughs> you have a point there all right from my standpoint and keep in mind most of my experience is as a dm not as a player character so a lot of a lot of my views will probably come from the outside looking in now i have done player you know like character creation before the vast majority of what i do is story tell so npc creation is a little different from pc creation a um, lot of ways <laughs> So uh, in terms of a PC creation, what makes a good character, in my opinion, is uh, there are three factors that need to be considered. Um, the first is relevance. What does your character have to do with the plot? If the answer is nothing, then you're putting all of the stress basically on your DM to find you a reason to be invested. Mm -hmm. Meet them halfway. Find a reason for them to be invested. Ask if there's something weird happening in the town. Ask them, is this weird thing happening to family members and things like that? Could I have NPCs involved? Could I have myself involved in something that's been going on? Give yourself a hook or the DM will give you a hook. So relevance is, is, is important. Um, it's not essential. In some cases, your characters, the whole draw might be that your characters are inexplicably in a situation. 
But in most stories that I have found that base themselves around parties, relevance is a good way to start. Makes what sense. are you doing here? Second, uh, I believe, uh, in my opinion, is um, adaptability to a group. There are a lot of games. Um, World of Darkness, especially Vampire, really plays to this where there is this uh, environment of backstabbing, of treachery that is going on. And then there are other game systems like D&D that focus more around a party system. My group has done primarily World of Darkness. So a lot of that treachery has begun to follow us into other games. Mm -hmm. What I think is important when you first create a character is to decide why they would let someone in, why they would work together with somebody, why they would be with a group. If you are creating a loner, you're creating someone that relies on nobody and has no interest in being part of any or makes their career dicking people over. You're setting yourself up to be othered or outsider in in the group that eventually comes. You're, you're not. It makes less of a difference if you develop towards being a loner because of events that happen. That's fine. That's in story that can be reversed. But if you begin that way, it's harder to pull you in if you won't engage. Now, along that line, uh, one of the games that I've been playing recently, we had a character for a long time who was, he started out as a loner. He was an elven ranger who belonged to a religious organization called the Silver Flame, which had almost nothing to do with the main story that we were building on. He was not connected to any of the other player characters in any way, and on paper seemed like a potentially difficult character to work with. Now, the player who was running this character is somebody that I have great respect for and is a solid player. Uh, he's an actor before he is a writer or anything like that, so he takes it from a more emotional, human standpoint and wanted this character to have a nice, like, redemptive, brought-into-the-fold story arc. Unfortunately, that was met with a lot of resistance, not the redemption, but the actual character himself was met with a lot of resistance from another particular player who it was kind of a mix of not seeing the same potential that I did and also taking a lot from a bad early interaction and mm. essentially made it so that this character couldn't move forward in his story and eventually left the game. The play... Mm. Sorry. The player created a new character and came back in and everything is fine and it's all good. It was just like the potential of this character never got to take off because of exactly what you were talking about. They started as a loner and that's really difficult to build off of. Now, I wouldn't want to tell anybody that they can't create the solo player like mentality completely. If that is if that is something you want to do, fine. Go ahead. You can create someone that's been on their own for a while, but you need to work in a chink in their armor, like a like a like a like a hole, like a um, like a missing scale in the belly of the beast, so yeah. to say. Something to humanize um, them. Exactly. You you need something that allows people to build the sense of a party on you. For more for less character driven games. 
it may not be as important, but I feel as though both you and I run stories that are a lot more uh, character motivated and uh, plot motivated than, say, grabbing treasure and kicking down doors motivated. Oh, yeah. I can't think of so, the last time that I ran a game that actually had, like, structured loot-based dungeons. And there, and I'm not saying that those games are not, uh, you know, just as rational or, you know, just as justifiable as the ones that, that we run. It's, oh, of course. It's, it's just, just not the style of gaming that I do. Exactly. So all of my opinions fall from a from a story perspective what does an opening character need to have in order to fit in and their willingness to adapt to a group environment is a very very important one if you have too many people that like to do things on their own what you force the storyteller to do is to split their time between each of these different characters running separate scenes and it can slow down the plot going off on your own and having the spotlight is completely fine but if that is all that your group is doing is it's essentially a story where the storyteller goes from player to player to player to find out what they're doing and none of these scenes are inherently connected it is going to be a slower slog because you'll have to wait till everybody else's scene is done before you can get involved with the action yeah normally when a player hears don't split the party they're thinking it from their own perspective of it'll make it easier for everyone to die but it's really from the storyteller's perspective of, no, guys, it's really hard to run five different games at once and keep it actually interesting for the players who aren't in the middle of it. Splitting the party can be an effective tool in certain scenarios, but there should be a party. Definitely. I'm only cool with splitting the party if there was a party to begin with, because that suggests that you can come back together. If there was never a party to begin with, then you didn't so much split the party as never form it in the first place. Hmm. I agree. That makes sense. And so what's the, thing number three? The thing number three, and this may be met with some, you know, I, I understand these are just my opinions. Oh, uh, are you going to bring three, something controversial in here? Maybe it's not controversial. Maybe maybe I, I just overestimate it. But I think it's a bring in a creative spark. Bring in a, a piece of passion. I do not care if your character is a bard, a monk, a fighter, a barbarian, whatever. That's not important to me. What is that what is important is why they are those things. What are they the bard? of what are they if they are a barbarian what tribe or group or family are they from are you excited about this concept i can measure whether i'm doing a good job in my game with whether i have conversations with people involving my game outside of the table mm -hmm. so if someone comes up to me after the game is done, like a few days down the line, say, hey, I was thinking about this. Would I be able to plan something like this, do you think, for the next game? Or I was thinking about my character, this. This is a song that came up while I was thinking about my character. It suggests or it tells me that outside of the construct of the game, outside of the event itself, the story has remained alive in them. It's not something that goes to sleep 
or checks out when you are away from the dice. It continuously evolves and grows. If I can see that passionate spark for a character, I can build off of that. The more excited players are about my game, the more excited I am about the game. So in creating a character, I think what you need to bring is a lot of raw excitement, creation, and creativity itself to the character. Make them something very interesting to you. Give them things you want to explore. Give the DM hordes of plot hooks that they could theoretically use at any point in time. I like how you thought that that was going to be a controversial statement. Because it's like, hey, in this creative storytelling game, I think you should probably bring in some creativity. <laughs> well, I don't... So there... So... I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to creativity, so it's not like I want to necessarily say you have to go in above and beyond and impress the DM if you want to be able to create a character, but I do actually kind of mean that for my own games. And I understand that people put different weights or have different capabilities involving that sort of like creation. Mm -hmm. Well, and also part of what it comes down to is your average player of specifically Dungeons & Dragons runs anywhere on the spectrum of pure combat monster, I just want to roll the dice and hit things, to pure role player where they don't want to pick up the dice at all. <laughs> yeah. And I've played with both. I definitely prefer closer to the pure role-playing standpoint, but mm -hmm. also the dice and the mechanics are there for a very specific and very particular reason, and if you haven't set yourself up to actually utilize that you're missing part of the game you're missing the element of chance that shapes the game because otherwise there's no difference than say just like sitting down and having a conversation through the story just basically acting it out creatively as it goes and that's that's perfectly viable but oh, the yeah. element of chance of roles allows for encounters to not be fully planned they could go in any direction outside of what both the storyteller and the player would have expected or maybe even wanted. All right, so there is a bit of a random topic shift here because we had a sound issue and we fixed it, and now, I mean, we just frankly forgot what the last thing we said was. You didn't yeah. because you just heard it in the recording, but we did because, I don't, I don't know, what do you expect, man? <laughs> so we're going to shift right now to talking about more of the storyteller perspective. Colin was kind of getting into that a little bit with talking about as a storyteller, what does he like to see from characters? But I want to get into not really non-player characters in general, but every game that I've ever run. I've had a couple of characters that I sheet out like player characters because they're more important or they will be fought or something like that. And that is an entirely different sort of character creation, even though you're using all of the same mechanics and everything, at least for me. I know that when I'm especially building my antagonists, it's all about what is their function to the story and how will they play against the players. And sure. with that, level comes into play, which is mm. not something I like to think too much about. It's really mechanical and weird. Nah. But also, it's really important, because 
actually having solid encounter balance is a major part of running a decent game. So, like, the last game that I ran long-term was a World of Darkness game that I streamed on twitch.com.tv. Twitch.tv. Not twitch.com. Anyway. I don't know why I'm trying to plug it. It's not streaming anymore and there are no archives. You can't go and watch it. But what I did was I essentially made a Promethean, which is like a Frankenstein sort of person, as one of the antagonists for my group. And I knew two of them are pretty good with combat and one of them is good with gadgets and gear and gizmos and all of that. But the two that are good with combat are in completely different sorts of uh, methods. One was a melee fighter and the other was a gun guy. So I had to create an NPC, an antagonist, who was capable of defending against both melee and ranged attacks, while also not being so strong as to be completely unbeatable. So essentially what I had okay. to go through was setting up all of the stats and all of the mechanical balancing nonsense so that this guy was, you know, tough, but not completely lethal. You, I, you don't want to kill your players outright with a really strong NPC. I mean, you know, that would be a nice way to go about it. Well, yes. Uh, it would also be a rough way to run a game that I was broadcasting if I'm just like, hey, here's this random, like, mid-boss who's definitely not the final guy that you're taking down, but is kind of important, and he's just going to wipe the party and the story's over. Which, you know, that was the other part of it. His purpose in the story was definitely be the obstacle that keeps the players temporarily from finding out what's actually going on. Fair enough. So, so I, I, no, I guess what I'm getting at with this is when I, as a storyteller, create a character for a specific purpose, they are first and foremost that thing, and everything else can be built around that. Okay, I kind of get what you mean. Do your antagonists, since we're mostly talking about antagonists, do they ever win? Yes, but not permanently. Mm-hmm. I don't... I don't like stories where the bad guy just wipes the floor with the good guy, but I do like stories where it's always a struggle. So here's a question for you. Have you ever had one of your players turn into an antagonist and we'll touch on this a little bit with what is good and evil and good party dynamics in later podcast things but i am curious and want to ask this now have you ever had a player character turn into a party antagonist and if so where do you draw the line are they allowed to win because they have the um they have the the self-determination of a player character, which suggests that they are the star of the show and the world warps around them, mm -hmm. or the fact that they've made themselves an antagonist means that they've set themselves up, at least in your opinion as a storyteller, to eventually fail because you don't want to tell the story about how evil triumphs. So I'm going to take my answer here in two directions, the first being the community episodes 
where they play D and D in I believe it was the second one. Pierce, oh, yes. uh, played by Chevy Chase, ends up buying <laughs> all of the source books and all of the scenario books that Abed is using, and does exactly that. And it's one of the most intriguing representatives of a player going against the party that I've ever seen, because everything is done perfectly and it's beautifully diabolical i have never run a game where that happens to me but i have played in a game where that could have potentially happened uh and this is actually one of the games that i'm in currently and if we did this with one of my characters becoming an antagonist a while back i forgot it i think jacob castle might have gotten a little antagonistic at one point but i don't know if he ever went bad guy uh, uh did I ever fight the party? Uh not directly. Okay. Well, uh in in this other game that I'm running in right now, I had started with a warforged who is basically a robot person called Doc. He was a cleric and basically the team's medic and through story things that are too complicated to really go into, but essentially amount to he wanted a thing to have that the rest of the party wanted to destroy. He has now gone off on his own, and he's doing his own thing, and if the party continues to go after the thing that he wants to claim, they will fight. Excellent. Interesting. But since he's out of the light, since you've made another character to replace him, does he then become an NPC to be used by the DM? That's up to me and the DM. We haven't had that exact conversation, but what I understand is if it becomes relevant, I'll probably end up playing both characters. And I'm not going to pull punches as Doc. So, do you let your PC that has decided to, for whatever reason, go against the party, do you let them win if they successfully pull it off? I... See, I'm getting a little selfish because as a player, I want to say yes. But also as the other player, I want to say no because nobody wants to see their character that they've put through like a year of real time just unceremoniously die. Mm -hmm. But at Uh the same time, if it's in service to the story and it makes sense and it's good, who's going to say no? Well, I've had a lot of experience with a player that becomes antagonistic to the party, and I have said on many occasions, and some people may disagree with this, but I feel very strongly about it, that if you decide to become an agent of evil, if you decide to make your character about betraying the party, destroying the party, uh, throwing everybody else under the bus so that you can win, if you're going to become a party antagonist, and our game is not about allowing uh, party antagonists to win. Like, if we, did, we don't make the evil king be the victor in the end. Some people will absolutely play it that way. If there's a TPK, there's a TPK. It just goes down that way. In my stories, though, it's a little harder to reach the TPK. The service of the story is that, the, that eventually what is right usually triumphs. At least that's what I find is the stories that I usually run since the doom and gloom generally makes people not want to come back and play again right and you uh, know, a big part of that is about setting up good encounter balance right 
so an important an important thing to accept when you are a player in my game and you decide to betray the party is I will allow it to happen. I will I will work the story in service to you because you are a player. However, you need to set yourself up for possibly most likely being defeated in the end. If I can align your goals with the party again, I'll do I'll do that. If I cannot do that, then I will do the very best that I can to give you your player exactly what they want to accomplish before their own defeat. There was a vampire game that I ran in which one person decided to try to become like the apotheosis uh like scion of an ancient god and Ooh. I let them do it. They eventually succeeded and did that. However, the player characters had effectively found a weapon that would allow them to destroy this god. Um and they employed it against him when he had the god inside him and then he died. But in doing so, he changed the face of the world. The player was okay with that because the player had accomplished everything that they'd wanted to do and then allowed themselves to be defeated in service of the story. See, I like that. That feels like a solid way to give everybody what they're looking for. It's not the same with everybody. There are some player characters who decide to betray the party for their own reasons, go rogue, and when their plans fall apart or when they are destroyed, they get really upset about it because they have effectively lost. Whereas if they had won, it would have been at the expense of everybody else playing the game. And this is a situation where I say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, but really the needs of the storyteller outweigh all of those anyway. I am I'm not somebody who says like all of the players are playing in service of the DM's story because that's really selfish and shitty. Mm -hmm. But there is a story that is being guided. It is being told collaboratively, but it's still somebody's tale. Yes. So. Uh, I wanted to quickly backtrack a little bit to the creation of NPCs. Uh, there I is see. a pitfall that DMs can fall into, uh, which are called DM NPCs. Oh, God, yeah. Or just yes. GNPCs. Or DMPCs. Or, yeah. yeah, basically. So you, you, know, you know what it is. For anybody listening who doesn't know what that is, for whatever reason... A uh, DMPC or a GMPC is essentially when the dungeon master inserts a badass NPC to be part of the party permanently or for a very long period of time and takes the spotlight by force. Essentially, essentially, essentially. That's uh, actually the second time you've said it that way. Well, I caught it the second time. You did. I wasn't going to point it out, but you caught it. Look at me adding in random vowels. Um, you were just trying to get sensual with your words. Thank you. That. All right. You're welcome. <laughs> so DNPCs. Yes. Uh, DNPCs are essentially self-gratifying, uh, narcissistic sort of uh, self-inserts. Now, to clarify, this is not the, say grizzled veteran character who comes in to guide the story or not the story the player characters through the first story arc and then 
let's say, heroically sacrifices themselves, or goes off into retirement, or is horribly maimed and is forced into not being with the party. That serves a different purpose. This is a character who essentially, for all intents and purposes, cannot be killed because the DM runs them. Right. The The main difference between a GMPC and any other NPC of any varying skill levels is that a GMPC makes the story about themselves, and an NPC serves the story of the players. I think that's a very good distinction. That's, uh, so, so... If you're ever in a situation where you've got a favorite NPC, and Lord knows, I've got so many favorite NPCs that I would not want to die in a story and that I think are badass and awesome. If you've got one that is showing up a lot, taking down most of the monsters, causing most of the plot to uh, essentially continue on, and it is not for the lack of trying of the player characters you might want to look into drawing them back, allowing the PCs to do more. <clears throat> a, um, if you make the players care about the NPCs, they'll care about the NPCs' problems. But if you make the NPCs solve the PCs' problems, then they've got nothing to do. Exactly. It should never be the focus of the story. It should just be something that helps the players along. Oh, exactly. Excuse me. Burps. <laughs> it's all good, buddy. Uh, so, I just wanted to quickly make a note about that. That note is appreciated. And going all the way back to the very beginning, you never answered this, Jess. Oh, I didn't, did I? What do you think makes a good PC? So... For me, for a character that I'm going to play, it's all about potential. I need to have a character who, whether through their backstory, their skills, their goals, or some combination of all three, they have a lot to do in the future. And most of that should be in service of the plot that's being laid out before me, but whenever I create a character, I like to build in a lot of plot hooks for a DM to grab onto. Because I feel like that makes it more fun for everybody. Right, of course. So, essentially what that comes down to is... I'll write a fairly detailed backstory for most of my characters. I don't use it. God, I can't talk right now. I don't usealize my writing skills for all of my languagey things. But I, I do try to make as much potential into a character as possible. Everything else, you know, party dynamics and history and utilization, <clears throat> utility is the word I was looking for there, that's all important but secondary to what essentially comes down to how are they going to make it through the future that they are living in. Mm. So uh, how do you start making a character? What is your process? It's actually really similar to what you were saying is like step one is figure out what the party needs. If you're playing a game like World of Darkness where there's not specific classes, figure out if anybody's got something that they're really good at or something that the party as a whole is lacking. I like to fill space. 
Uh, second after that would definitely be figure out what kind of person I want to play. Like, uh, the two characters that I'm running right now, Rion Sundowner and Staniel Iron Badge. That's right. Staniel. He's a dwarven <laughs> bard. Staniel can't, can't handle it. See, I made Staniel for three reasons. Reason number one, I wanted to use the name Staniel. Because it's been bouncing around in my head for literally years. Number two, I wanted to play a bard. And number three, I wanted to do something that was a little bit more lighthearted and a little bit more personable than the character I had been playing before. Which was Doc, who as a robot with no charisma bonus, was not fun for me to play. So like, that's part of the utility of the character is I've got to be able to have fun and get into it. But also, they have to have a use in the party. And from there, it's essentially like... I found this really incredible figure-out-things-about-a-character sheet on Tumblr that I've started using to help build the backstories and the relationships and all of that for all of my characters. So, that's essentially what I did next. There's a lot of resources online that really help with that. And it makes true, everything true. a lot more um, fleshed out. <laughs> Not bad. All right. <clears throat> Let us bounce quickly to our last part of the character creation topic, which is experimental ideas in this section. And it will be, in a, and it will be a sesh, uh, section that we will likely continue in a bunch of different – in a, hopefully a couple more episodes is – we can give you examples, at least from our perspective, of possibly one, maybe two or three different ideas to utilize um, when dealing with this particular topic. <clears throat> I recently began a game on Wednesday, uh, the game that I said that somebody kept canceling the day of, uh, Lost Steam, Narrative Steam. Um we went a month without playing, and I had to put the story on the shelf. I lost my momentum for it. I lost my excitement for it. And a game that the DM isn't excited for is not a game that the players will enjoy. So I had to put it on the shelf. Mm -hmm. We'll return to it later, and I had to make a different game um, to kind of get things stirred again. <clears throat> so I created a game called Decadence, which is a vampire-ish-esque, sort of, game that I've created. In order to do character creation. And as I said in the first podcast, I like to do something different in every single game that I do. I created this four bowl system. Uh, the four bowl system, <clears throat> name pending, and I'm sure there are variations <laughs> of this that are actually more official, but the way that I handled this <clears throat> was I created threats, boons, complications, and connections. Uh, connections are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, uh, they were a series of strips put into a different bowl, mixed up, and all players had to choose one for each player on, you know, in, in the game. Interesting. Uh, and then assign them. And they were things like, you've seen this character, uh, you've seen this character at their absolute worst and you know how they got there. Uh, things like, this character lied to the authorities on your behalf once you still feel you owe them one and then you the player would need to find out pick among the people be like i want to assign this to 
click EU. How did this work out? Which side is it? Did I lie to the authorities or did you lie to the authorities for me? And they each, so in the end, everybody had two connections to each character. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Boons and complications. They were uh, they were a two bowl deal. Every boon that you chose, you'd have to choose a complication. Boons were things like um, privileged lifestyle, a certain number of dots of resources. Uh, perhaps your family is rich. Perhaps you are rich for whatever reason. Your life is uh, does not go for lack of resources. You start with these kinds of bonuses, and then there are complications. Um, such as, uh, um, such as an enemy, you have a rival who has been, who has been competing against you since you were young. What originally started as uh, ordinary competition has gotten a lot more serious. And nowadays it might even turn violent. Oh, this person will always be about as strong as you, no matter what happens. And their goals will most likely be opposed to you. And then from there, the last bowl that I had were threats. I had low, moderate, and severe threats. And these were story hooks that they could draw initially. Now, this works better in a sandbox game where there's not a uh, predetermined extreme storyline like the one that uh, because the hooks will actually define where the story goes. There's things like missing sibling, uh, or, or you know, like or, or sorry, it, it was the threat was missing. Someone is missing. They've been gone for a few days now. There's no explanation to leaving. Perhaps they are a lover. Perhaps they are a parent. Perhaps they are a, a close friend or a sibling. But they, the only clues that you have is that it looks like they packed up in a hurry and left in uh, and left in a dash. You've heard nothing from them since. You have an extra contact in the police force. Maybe you've reported them missing. Maybe you haven't. Essentially, uh, a threat is the skeleton of a plot hook that you get to set Mad Lib style the details of and then give the details to me and then I populate it out. I generally know what the plot is sort of about. Like, for instance, the threat of Stalker. Uh, that you have a – it's become increasingly obvious in the last several months that you have a Stalker. Keep catching glimpses of someone following you out of the corner of your eye, but recently it's gotten very severe. They've gotten into your they've gotten into your domicile. Oh. At first, little things went missing, but recently notes have started to appear in unlikely places, and their subject matter is getting increasingly disturbing. See, you that's draw a these random. Hmm. Like that you kind of made my skin crawl the... a little bit there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you you draw these randomly uh, <clears throat> from the bowls, and the way that it works is that the first that you draw, you can look at. If you don't like it, fold it back up, put it in the bowl, tell nobody what you got, and shake it up again, and you draw again. You only have to draw from the threat bowl once. You only have to draw from the boon bowl once. Every time you draw a boon, you draw a complication, and you have to draw, of course – dynamic sentences uh, or connections to everybody. However, you have the option of drawing up to up to two or three threats, up to four boons and drawbacks, and everybody just chose to draw the maximum. Okay. 
I like Everybody that. loves story elements. So you give the players a chance. So what I have found, and this may not be the case for everybody, but what I have found to be true for the most part is that when you ask someone straight to their face, this is a fantasy world, create a character. They're like, ah, crap. It's all pretty of overwhelming. Yes, all the different options. But if you give them an archetype, if you give them a construct, I want you to create a, uh, I want you to create a, a warrior from this particular tribe. Then all of your ideas funnel in through that construct, and it's actually an aid to creativity rather than a hampering element. So the more pieces that you give someone that they can kind of the, – the more narrative toys you hand someone to work with, the easier it is to draw all of the disparate ideas of anything into a more of a something. Mm-hmm. And it seems to have worked really well. So that's an option that you might consider trying at your own table. It does not have to be the way that I set it up. It can be any possible way. Uh, but it is interesting. And it will get your game started off on a very cool note. Everybody is at least at the, at the very least forced to have a number of connections, drawbacks, advantages and connections to each other that you can play off of in order to build your story. Now, on an interesting note, that reminds me a lot about the character creation of Dread, which I briefly mentioned before involves getting questionnaires for different sort of pre-made characters. Like, you get these basic archetypes depending on what the story is. So if you're in a cabin-in-the-woods-style slasher, you'll get the jock, the cheerleader, so on and so forth. Um, I actually created a scenario of my own, which was a ghost ship. And the archetypes that I made were different people who would probably be on a cruise, one of which was like a stowaway, and one of which was a performer in like the stage show on the ship, and another was the first mate. So you get these really basic ideas of characters and you can really only tell what they are based on the questions that it asks you wait were none of your were none of your archetypes an actual passenger no like three of them were oh okay all right because I, I you gave me you gave me three wait a minute a stage performer a first mate and a stowaway are there no normal people on this ship no i had like seven people in that game those ah, are just the ones right. that I remembered off the top of my head as being more interesting than just, you're a person on the boat. <laughs> uh, at least you had, at least you had people on the boat. Oh, of course. You can't have, like, a spooky ghost story on a fucking cruise ship without having, you know, cruise ship passengers. Um, I mean, you could, but it makes it especially spooky. It does. You're on a spooky cruise. About an hour ago, you were standing in Tulsa. How did you get here? <laughs> the marine biologist in the desert. Exactly. Uh, but enough about that. I do have one really quick experimental character creation idea that I want to put out there. Because I've Go. been seeing it bounce around on the internet. Essentially, you hand out a bunch of mostly blank character sheets because you are running a game for a party of players who all come together and have amnesia. Ha! So 
they don't know what's on their sheet. They don't know most of their skills or attributes until it's absolutely relevant. So it's like, I want to I wanna try and jump over this gap. Okay, roll a d20, add three. It's like, oh, shit, I've got plus three to jump? Nice. Similarly, I want to talk to this person and see if I can charm them. Uh, all right. Uh, you cast a charm spell. I'm a wizard? I'm so drawn in by the idea of characters being played by people who don't know who they are and learning about your character as you go. The problem that I see with that is you've got to have a really good group to be able to play a character that they know literally nothing about before they start playing them. And I'm talking like world-class improvisers. Absolutely. But you could set up incredible situations like the uh, Darth Revan kind of thing. Now explain that to listeners who might not know what you're talking about. Is it okay? Is that it's been a, it's been such a long time? So it's, I feel like that spoiler's okay. Kotor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Knights of the Old Republic, the first game. So your main character. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's been a while since I played it, but your main character is like inexplicably uh, force sensitive and is um, was sort of kind of a uh, a prisoner of sorts, but now isn't. What it eventually comes. Uh, what eventually is revealed is that you are or were the entire time and you just didn't have the memory of like secretly the grant like the antagonist behind the antagonist or were the antagonist behind the main antagonist the entire time right uh if i remember correctly you're actually the bad guy from the first game at the start of the second game but you've completely lost all of your memory i think i thought that Knights of the Old Republic, the first game, was just about you being Darth Revan. You know, and then the second game was a different thing. Fact-checking will ruin the podcast. We will do <laughs> no such thing, and whatever it was, you can get me on Twitter, at jvetters, if I'm wrong. One of us was correct. Probably. So, technically speaking, our credibility is not damaged. One of us had the right answer. The podcast stands... Oh, man. Oh, man. Did we, you know, in the future, we should write an outro. We have an intro, not an outro. You know, you're probably right, but how's this for an outro? We hope you've had a delightful time listening to two complete idiots talk about our fun idiot hobby. And if you have... You should definitely subscribe to this podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at jvetters or on Instagram at jessvetters. You can follow Colin at things, probably. Do you have like a Tumblr at least? No, I do not have one of those either. You can follow Colin by listening to this podcast, hopefully every week. You can follow me in person if you know who I am, but that will be creepy. Very creepy. Please don't follow us in person. Unless you already know us and are just playing a goof. I'm good with goofs. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that too. So from me and Colin, this has been Dodecahedron, a geeky podcast where we talk about geeky things. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we look forward to hearing from you in the interim and seeing you next time. Bye.
Dodecahedron is a podcast by Jess Vetters and Colin Lamothe. You can find us on iTunes and Google Play, and probably somewhere else if we're really lucky and smart about it. Our intro and outro music is Cool Cats by Kevin McLeod. Also, Colin was right. It was the first KOTOR. <laughs>